Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. We're at the last chapter of Revelation. We're going to uh, cover the latter portion of it next week. We're going to talk some about what do we do with this, having walked through the book of Revelation, how do we apply this to our lives. I pray that this study of Revelation has been a blessing to you. Uh, God has certainly worked in my life um, that's the, the, the blessing and the burden of preaching God's word is that it cuts me before it cuts any of you. And uh, I pray often, uh, not just that the word of God would change those who hear, um, but it would change me. So I pray that you've seen God changing me as I've studied through this book as well. Um, I want to welcome, as you find your place in God's word, all those who are joining us our live stream. We, every week we have so many people um, all over Uh, the U.S. and around the world who gather up and worship with us, and so we're so grateful that you're able to worship with us and also reach Church DeSoto and Pastor Ryan and Pastor Josh and and Pastor Ryan. they got two Ryans out there. I get so confused now, but uh, uh, Ryan and Ryan out there at DeSoto, and also the sanctuary service right down the hall. Hey, Vinny, why don't y'all welcome all those that are watching. Give them a welcome. You may be wondering, why the change? Why doing something a little different? Um, A good while ago, it really burdened my heart that um, I'm called to pastor this church. And there's people that are in this church that I've never met. Um, And so prior to Lenexa Baptist, every church I'd been a part of was a smaller congregation. and, And I could actually know where people were sitting. And if they were absent, I knew it. I could call them. And uh It's difficult when I think about a room right down the hallway from our sanctuary, and there's people there that I've never even met, and I'm called the pastor. So I asked our media team, Pastor Bill and and Justin Pettigo, and I asked them, could you create a way for me to be able to preach live in different venues and then live stream it back to the other settings? And so we've been working on this for quite some time, and now we're able to do it, so I pray that you, all of you, that, that either see me live or sometimes live streamed, I, I pray that you know my heart is just to be a pastor, and sometimes we're just trying to figure out what that looks like with all this new technology. And so I want to thank you in advance uh, for being gracious as we work this out and try to figure out how to do this and shepherd God's people, knowing that we all have one good shepherd, amen, and we're just following him. Revelation 22, John's... Uh, Getting a preview of the eternal state, we, we saw some of it last week, we continue on this week. We're learning uh, where we will be, and not just where we will be, but a lot of the questions that people have is, what, what will we be doing uh, in the eternal state? Now, th- this is what we most often think about when we think of heaven, the eternal state. What will we do uh, for eternity? Will we play golf? I don't know. We'll see. We'll look at this chapter and see. I I play golf and not very well, but I play. And I think, surely, that game can't be in heaven. It frustrates me. But uh, uh, what do we do? Um, We're going to float around on clouds and strum harps. What does it look like? Well, guess what? God gives us some information. That's the beauty of God's word. He's going to give us a little taste. But do we really know? We don't. We'll have to wait. He says, hang in there. But I can guarantee you this. It's better than what we could ever imagine. So let's pray together, then we'll, we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. We would have had no way of knowing you had you not revealed yourself, had you not spoken. And so we open the word of God today 
And I pray that we wouldn't take this for granted. The opportunity to gather as your people around the sacred, holy, and inerrant word to hear your voice. God, you're the God of all creation. You know every one of us by name. God, everybody that's in this room watching online, I don't, I don't know what they're going through, but I can imagine just about everybody here is going through something. And what we desperately need is your voice. You've said man can't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So God, I pray that you'd speak to your children today. If we need encouragement, God, I pray that you would encourage. If we need discipline or challenge, God, do your work in our hearts so that we might be more effective for you. And God, if there's anybody today watching online here in person that doesn't know you, I pray that they'd be so overwhelmed by what you have done for them that they couldn't help but turn away from sin and turn towards Christ. That's our prayer. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me. Verse 1, chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The picture here is of this Beautiful river of water flowing down from the throne of God. You think about the dimensions of this holy city, the capital city of the eternal state, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles in both directions, and then 1,500 miles high. And there, the throne of God and flowing down from it, a a river crystal clear. Uh, We can't even begin to imagine, but I think the only thing we can compare it to is some of the crystal clear streams. If you've been to the mountains and you've done some hiking and you've seen some of those streams, it just, just looks so clear and so pure. And even that doesn't begin to do justice to this crystal clear river that, that, that flows down from the throne of God. And the picture here is that this water, this river, is providing eternal life, sustaining life, sustaining God's people We see this kind of picture throughout Scripture. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, there was a river that flowed out of Eden, and it watered all of the garden, giving life. And you see that picture throughout Scripture. In fact, you'll remember when God leads the Israelites out of uh, the bondage of Egypt in Exodus. They they get out there, and there's no water to drink, and they start grumbling and complaining, God, you've saved us from the Egyptians, and now you're going to let us die of, of thirst. And so God tells Moses, strike the rock, and and guess what happens? Pure water flows out to provide life to his people. We see this also in the book of Judges. In Judges 15, it's one of my favorite stories. Samson is delivered over to the Philistines. The Philistines, they're going to come and kill the Israelites. And the Israelites, they betray Samson to the Philistines, hoping that that will appease them, but it won't. The Philistines are determined to kill the Israelites But you remember Samson, who's betrayed by his own people, God's man, betrayed by his own people. He's kind of shackled up, and he breaks free from the shackles, and he defeats the Philistine army, and he uses what to do it? The jawbone of a donkey. So he takes the instrument of death, and he defeats death. He He comes between the people of God and death, and he takes the instrument of death and uses it to defeat the enemy. But you remember at the end of that story, he's just exerted himself to defeat this army. And he says, God, I defeated them. Now I'm going to die of thirst. I'm thirsty. And guess what God does? The, the ground breaks forth and water, pure water, gushes forth and provides life to Samson. It's actually a pre, 
prefiguring of Christ and what he would do on Calvary when God's man would be betrayed by his people and he would stand between the people of God and certain death, he would lay down his life and the place of death would become a, a river of life to all who believe in Jesus. We see it throughout scripture. Psalm 1, blesses a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand the path of sinners. Uh, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? In the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates both day and night, and he'll become like what? Like a tree firmly planted by a stream of water, the water of God providing life to his people. We see it throughout scripture. Isaiah 44, Isaiah 55 talks about the great hope of Israel would be that, that God would pour out his spirit and it would be like water upon his people and Messiah would come. In fact, in John chapter seven, uh, to me an amazing story, Jesus is in the temple area and they were celebrating the Feast of Booze. The Feast of Booze is when the Israelites in the fall, they would go camping, essentially. God would say, you're gonna go camping. You'd leave your nice little comfortable homes and you're gonna go camping. Why? Because he wanted the Israelites to remember that when they were led out of Egyptian bondage, guess what they lived in? They wandered around in the wilderness. They lived in tents. Isn't that good? God make us go camping once a year just to remember what he's brought us out of. That's what he did to the people of Israel. But as a part of that feast in, in Jerusalem, they would take some water, a pitcher of uh, a gold, and they would dip it in some water at the pool of Siloam, and then they'd carry it up to the temple, and they would pour it out, picturing their anticipation of Christ who would come and, and pour out God's spirit on all of his people. And it says that Jesus, in John 7, he's in the temple area, and they're celebrating the Feast of Booths, and they come to the last day when they would make a really big deal about pouring out this water. And, and the priest would actually pause. Before he would pour it out, he would pause, and there would be silence and, the, and they were, what they were doing is they were symbolically reminding of themselves that they're waiting on Messiah. We're waiting on Messiah. And there is Jesus in the temple. And guess what Jesus says? Jesus says to them, if you're thirsty, come and drink of me. And in your innermost being will flow rivers of living, uh, living life. And, and so there, Jesus is picturing himself as the Messiah, the one who provides life and, and life eternal. And here in the, in, the, in the paradise of the eternal state, we see again a river of life flowing down to God's people, supplying us with eternal life. And then in verse 2, look at what it says. In the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were the healing for the nations. So on the other, the, each side of this river flowing down, each side is, is tree. I think it's multiple trees. But they're tree of life and it produces fruit. It, it's a symbol of, of God's blessing, of God's eternal light. Producing fruit, glorified fruit. It's another reminder that we will eat. How about that? We're going to eat in the eternal state uh, the fruit of this tree, um, C.S. Lewis kind of conjectures about what it'll be like in that eternal state. In the Chronicles of Narnia, he pictures the people of God in the eternal state picking a piece of fruit. And as they bite into it, the joy of every great memory of their life comes to mind and they worship the source of all good things. Here you have the tree producing fruit, glorified fruit, continuously sustaining. And then the leaves provide healing. Now, please understand, that, that doesn't mean we're going to get sick. What it pictures here is that the tree and its fruit sustain us in every way with life and energy and youthfulness. Man has always been looking for the fountain of youth. A fountain that would provide youthfulness. Well, here in the eternal state, we'll have a river of life and a tree of life that will sustain and refresh our eternal bodies. It, it's, it's the Garden of Eden on steroids. <laughs> it's the Garden of Eden amplified, glorified a thousand times over. And notice here also the healing for the nations. That the nations will still exist in the eternal state. That, 
that you will retain your nationality. I don't know exactly what that means, but the uniqueness, we've talked about this, the uniqueness of your person, your personality, will be a part of your glorified body. If you're Irish, you'll you'll retain some of your Irishness. If you're Indian, you'll retain the uniqueness of your nationality, that heaven will be unity in the midst of diversity. How good is that? In fact, the church anticipates this. When every Sunday, when we gather to worship, we come from various places, different backgrounds, different nations, but we all gather in this place worshiping one Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the picture of heaven. You know, the most difficult part of this passage is that you you can't really illustrate it. I do the best I can, but... The fact of the matter is, we don't have anything to compare this to. Uh, We don't have anything in our world. We really don't have even anything in our minds to help us understand. We can only imagine. We have to wait to see. You know, when Christ came to save us, this is the beauty of this. When Christ came to save us, he didn't come initially as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Christ, when he came to save us, he didn't come and show off all the wealth of his glorious riches. No, he came humbly. He came as a lamb to die, a lowly carpenter's son. And scripture says that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was pierced through for our transgressions. And yet what happened? By the spirit of God and the word of God, we looked on this lamb who died and we saw in him the glorious riches of God's grace. We looked on this man who died in our place and we loved him. We gave our life to him. We responded to the truth of our sinfulness. We responded to the truth of his love and we we trusted in him for salvation. And in the moment of trusting in him, this lowly carpenter, this lamb who's died, in the moment that we trusted him, we became eternally wealthy. Co-heirs with Christ. But when will we fully and finally realize all the fullness of our incredible wealth? We have to wait. God just kind of gives us a little glimpse. He gives us a foretaste. And we wait in hope. Paul says in Romans 8, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That just like creation that was marred by the curse, and just like us who are sinners and now saved by grace, we long for the fullness of God's redemption when we'll have a glorified body, when we'll exist in His presence. We long for it, but we can't see it. We just, we just wait in hope. In fact, he goes on and says, for we have been saved in hope. But hope that's seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already sees? But he says, if we hope for what we have not seen, we wait and we persevere, anticipating the hope that is to come. Isn't that good? That's a picture of us. He's promised us. He says, I'm eternally wealthy. You trust in me? You'll be eternally wealthy. Can we see it? He said, I'll give you a little glimpse, but you got to wait. And we wait and hope. Verse 3, look at verse 3 and 4. There'll no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his, his bondservants will serve him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. No curse. We talked about this last week. The, the curse is removed. Satan is removed. No, no sin. This is what we can't. Our whole existence, all we have known is a world tainted by sin. Our, our sinful flesh. 
We, we, it's so hard to comprehend a world where there's no Satan, no sin, no opposition, no enemy, and not even the possibility of sin. No, no more mourning, crying, or pain. Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the garden, man in perfect fellowship with God and each other. And then sin. Revelation 22, we see man in a garden, the eternal state, perfect fellowship with God and with each other. Paradise lost, paradise regained. And how did we get there? Through the lamb who died in our place. The eternal state's a place of total purity. The throne of God and the lamb will be in it, so you see Christ and God, the lamb who died, Jesus, they're ruling in perfect righteousness and peace. Now, here's the question that so many people ask. What are we going to do? What will we do for all eternity? You know, typically when people think about this, they go in one of two directions. Either they focus primarily on the physical aspect of heaven. They just want to know about all the physical enjoyments of their desires. Am I going to play golf? Am I going to go fishing? Am I going to get to walk the hill? I don't know. They're, everybody's got something in their mind. I don't know what, what you think about. But, but when, you, when most people talk about the physical aspect, it really has nothing to do with God. It just has to do about them finding joy. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, some people just want to over-spiritualize it. They, they just become ultra-spiritual and we're just, you know, angels. And by the way, we do not graduate to becoming an angel. That's not heaven. You have a glorified body. We, we go to heaven, but the picture for some people is we're just floating spirits on clouds strumming harps, and, and that's not accurate. And in many ways, sometimes that has nothing to do with God. The beauty of Revelation 2 is we see aspects of both. That, that heaven is a place where we have a glorified, real, physical body, and we will recognize each other, and we, we live in a real and physical place, but the focus of all of our attention in heaven will be what? It'll be God and his son, Jesus Christ, the lamb who died. And so Revelation, it's the perfect balance between the physical and the spiritual that we'll have a glorified body in a real place, and all of our attention will be based on two things. We'll, we'll serve Christ, and we'll worship him. Now, we don't get a lot of detail about what the service will be, but we'll look upon it. And I, to me, the part that really sticks out to me is that we'll, we'll look on him. Uh, in other words, you think his, his, his gifts are good. Wait till you see him. The, the source of every good thing in our life is God. You know, life is, all of our life really is a searching for that which is good and beautiful and kind and delightful and joyful. We want food that tastes good. We want clothes that look good. We, we like people who are kind and, and nice Everything good that we, we long for, you can ultimately trace back to an attribute of God. If, if you're looking for a spouse, I can almost guarantee you, you're looking for somebody who demonstrates some of the attributes and the qualities of God. The source of all good things is God. James 1:17. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything we love and long for in this world finds its source in God. And guess what? In the eternal state, we get to look on him. Uh, when you think about Christ on earth, his earthly ministry, you have God incarnate, the incarnation of God. And those who met him, the people of God, they were drawn to him like a moth to a flame. They left everything just to be with Jesus, just to be around him. You remember the disciples, Jesus comes to them and says, follow me. And what do they do? They left everything. 
They left their business. They left their family. They left everything. Why? They just wanted to be with Jesus. You remember John and Andrew and John's gospel? They, they just start following Jesus. And, and Jesus looks at them and he kind of sees these guys. He's wondering, what are these guys doing? And he says, what do you, what do you want? What, did you, what do you want to see? And you know what John and Andrew say? It's kind of an odd question. They just say, where are you staying? In other words, John and Andrew just said, I don't know what it is about you. We just want to be around you. Mary Magdalene owed all of her life to Christ. Jesus restored her life. And she owed everything to him. And she wouldn't leave him. She was there at the cross. When everybody except John, the disciples, wasn't there. She stayed. She wasn't going to leave him. She was there at the tomb. Mothers, mothers would bring their children to Jesus just to get a glimpse of him. Children were drawn to Christ. Zacchaeus, you remember Zacchaeus, the little short guy, climbs up in a tree. Why did he climb up in a tree? He just wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see this man. And and Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to go to your house. And Zacchaeus came down quickly. The Gerasene demoniac, one of my favorite stories, the Gerasene demoniac, you remember he's chained up in the tombs. He's he's self-destructive. He's destructive towards other people. And they consider him as good as dead. They've chained him up in the tombs. He meets Jesus. His life is transformed. It says he was clothed, seated, and in his right mind. But the best part of that story is at the end of the story, guess what the garrison demoniac is trying to do? Jesus gets in the boat, and he sees the demoniac who's now been changed. He's stowed away trying to hide in the boat so he can be with Jesus. I picture Jesus saying, what in the world are you doing? And that demoniac saying... I just want to be with you. And Jesus, you can't stay with me. You got to go back and tell other people. You remember the woman at the well? She comes to Jesus. She meets this guy who knows everything about her, exposes all of her sin. And yet he loves her and she trusts in him. She, she recognizes him as the Messiah. And she goes back to her village and guess what she says? She tells them, come see a man. She says, you got to come see this guy. At Jesus' birth, you got wise men coming from the east to look upon a toddler. And they lay their gifts down at his feet. You remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Thomas is the one who said, I'll, I'll not believe unless I see it. I gotta see it, I gotta touch it. And Jesus, then the resurrected Christ, appears to Thomas, and Jesus essentially says, I heard about your little litmus test. Why don't you put your finger right here? You wanna touch? Come on, brother. He said, be not, be not unbelieving, be believing. And Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God. And you remember what Jesus says to him? Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. We believe in a Christ that we've never seen with our physical eyes. He came into our hearts. He exposed our sin. We saw the glory of his love demonstrated on the cross. We gave everything to him. We love him. We follow him. We love those moments when we're in his word and we open up his word and God speaks to us in a real way. Have you had those moments where you're in God's word and it's as if you're the only person in the world and God speaks personally to you and it's a reminder that he loves you and you hear his voice and and we talk with him by means of prayer, but we can't look on him. We can't physically see him. That's what Peter said in his letter, 1 Peter 1. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him now, you believe on him. And you're filled with joy, inexpressible, and full of glory. We love him. We long for him. The beauty of the eternal state is that one day we get to see him. We get to see him. We don't have anything to compare it to. The best we can do is think of the most joyful moments in our life. I think of when my boys were born. And we, we prayed for our boys before they were born. We went to the doctor, you get those sonogram pictures, and we started praying for them. And it's like almost instantaneous love. My love for faith grew over time. My faith for Wyatt and Walker, it was like right there. I never even seen them, except through a little picture. And I loved them. But I'll tell you the greatest moment. The greatest moment was being in a hospital room with Faith and a doctor. And... Montgomery, Alabama, Jackson Hospital. And Wyatt, a nurse, handed me, and I loved them, but when you look at their eyes, that's the best we can do. That's the best I got. Take the, the most joyful moment you've ever experienced in your life and multiply it by a million, and I don't even think you begin to touch the surface of what it will be to see to see Jesus. Look at verse 5. And there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of a sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they'll reign forever and ever. No more darkness. This is hard for us because we, we, we live in a dark world. Um, we see it every day. I, mean, I woke up this morning and checked the news. Another shooting. Boy, we got a sinful world. It's a mess. It's a dark world. And when we trust in Christ, the beauty of it, when we trust in Christ, the light comes on, doesn't it? And now we have the word of God as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And, and now we're able to kind of see what obstacles are out there and we can kind of navigate life. But we're still looking through a glass dimly, right? We, we see, but it's still a struggle. We, we, we still deal with sin and it's not a perfect scene. The glory of heaven is that one day the fullness of God's glory will illumine everything and we will see it perfectly. We will be seen in our glory. Christ will be seen in the fullness of his glory. In his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. One day the fullness of his life. And then he says also that we'll reign forever. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. If, if we endure, we'll, we'll also reign with him. Meaning we're eternally victorious. See, I'm, I'm a Cowboys fan. And I wonder sometimes, what would it be like to win? Um, uh, you know, it's hard. Uh, one day I'll get to be kind of like a Patriots fan. Although they're a little struggle but lately. But, but to be... A part of something that always wins. To never know defeat and to exist in a place where there's no more darkness. No more tainting of sin. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the, the prophecy of this book. These words are faithful and true. He says to John, this is true. 
This is real. You can trust it. Uh, Jesus in John 14 told the disciples, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus said, if this weren't true, I would have let you know. It's true. You, you, you can base your life on these words. You can, you can make these words the foundation of your life, and you won't be disappointed. We just celebrated the life yesterday of one of our deacons, Ron Pence. And he was a man who, to the very end, in fact, the, the phrase that he kept crying out was, he, he, would, tell, he would tell his family and doctors, I'm not, I'm not in any pain. But he was in pain. And the whole time, he said it over and over again, help me, Jesus. To the very end, he was just clinging to the only hope of his life was Jesus. That's faith. That we believe this stuff. We, we found our life upon it. And we go to the grave, to the final breath, trusting that these words are true. Notice here, he also says, these are the things that, which must soon take place. It's the imminent return of Christ. Um, the imminent return of Christ means that, it doesn't mean that we think Christ is going to come back in three days or three months or three years or 300 years. The imminent return of Christ is what the apostles believed. It's what the New Testament believed. It's that Christ could come back and return at any moment. The imminent return of Christ means that we live every day as if it's our last the imminent return of Christ means there's nothing holding God back from bringing about all that we read in Revelation to come to pass. We live every day as if the next day will be the day that we'll stand before God. And notice here, he says, blessed is he who, who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus, in his first sermon, started out with what? Blessed. Yeah, the, the Bible really is interested in how to have a happy life. Blessed just means happy. Do you know that God really is interested in your happiness? But do you want to know what the Bible tells us over and over and over and over again? The blessed life comes from heeding the words of this book. It's that simple. You want to have a blessed life? God says, obey my words. See, the blessing of Revelation is not that, we're not studying Revelation so that we can have a bunch of knowledge. Boy, we know all about the end times. Let me share with you how much prophecy I know. We're not studying this so you can have a timeline. And we're studying this so that it would transform our lives and remind us not only of what we have coming to us, but what God's going to do to remind us that in the day in which we live, we're called to be faithful. It says the blessing comes to those who, who heed this book. God makes some wonderful promises in this book. Promises about heaven, no more sin, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more defeat, no darkness, ruling and reigning with him in a glorified body, in a glorified state, amazing promises. And know this, God always keeps his promises. That's God's job. And God is the great promise keeper. He's the one who works his plan. He is sovereign, he is God, that's his role. Guess what our role is? Trust and obey. Don't you love that? I'm a simpleton. I don't have to know all the answers. I don't have to have all the details. God just says, do what I'm told you to do. Just obey me. The blessed life comes to those who, who trust him, who obey him. Know this today. God has never made a promise. He didn't keep. He's a great promise keeper. You know, the Bible contains so many promises, it's impossible to calculate the number of them. You, 
People have tried. There's no way you can count. It's just full of promises. I want to give you three as we close really, really quickly. Three promises that you can hang your hat on today no matter what you're going through. Promises of this book, the book of Revelation, promises of the word of God. I want to give you three quick promises that you can build your life upon. Number one, know this. The word of God is true. And obeying it is always profitable. The word of God is true and obeying it is always profitable. Number one, the word of God is true. Guess what Satan has been trying to do since the Garden of Eden? He's attacked the validity and the truthfulness of God's word. That is what Satan tried to do. He'll try to tell you, you can't believe this book. One of the great attacks of Satan is that there's no truth. Truth's whatever you want to make it to be. And God says, no, this is truth. You know what truth is? Here it is. It's in God's word. Um, the French philosopher Voltaire said that 100 years after my death, the word of God will be forgotten. You know what's interesting? 100 years after his death, they turned his house into a printing press for guess what? The Bible. That's God's na-na-a-boo-boo. You just keep making you. Listen to me. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God endures forever. I'm telling you today, the problem is not what I don't know. The problem is what I do know and I don't obey. So many people got so many questions about God's word. What about this? What about that? The problem's not what we don't understand. The problem's what we do understand and don't obey. Obey God's word. It's true and it's profitable. It's profitable. It's profitable in this life. Now, I want to be clear about that because, listen, You follow God's word, there's no guarantee you're going to have a bigger bank account. There's no guarantee you're going to live longer. In fact, I'll say it this way. You obey God today, you make this book the foundation of your life, life might get more difficult. But I'll tell you what it will do. It'll change you. It'll make you a better husband. It'll make you a better father. It'll make you a better friend. It'll make you a better employee. It'll make you a better citizen. It'll make you a light. Share with you earlier, I I pray every week that the word of God would change those who hear it. But my primary prayer is that you would see the word of God changing me. The word of God will change you. It's profitable in this life, but boy, it is eternally profitable in the next. How profitable? Beyond what you can imagine. You've got to wait to see. But better than what you could ever imagine. The word of God is true and obeying is always profitable. Secondly, Jesus Christ is coming to judge the world. That's a promise. That's a promise. See, there's so many people living today without any sense of accountability. I'll never be judged. I can do whatever I want to. There is no final judge. Listen to me. There is a final judge. And what people will say today, well, if he is there, why hasn't he come already? The same thing was said in Peter's day. They told Peter, where's he at? If your God's coming, where's he at? And you know what Peter said? Don't. God doesn't count slowness as some count slowness. He even says there in that chapter, a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. You know, that's the thing about God. He's not on, you know, we're not on the time and dates committee. He sets the timetable. But what Peter says is, God is not slow about the promises, some count slowness, but he is patient. 
How many of you in this room watching online, how many of you are grateful that Christ didn't return 10 years ago? Amen, because you'd have been burnt toast, right? You'd have been out of, been bad. Aren't you grateful that God was patient? Every day that he extends is another opportunity for somebody trusting Jesus Christ. It's another opportunity for you to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. But he is coming back. Write it down, take it to the bank. And then the final thing, this is the best promise of all. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the greatest promise in all of God's word. We see it again and again in the book of Revelation. Throughout this book, God is patient. God is saving out of people. He continue, he's excessively patient. He's overwhelmingly patient. If I had been God, I would have kicked me down the curb a long time ago. But he's excessively patient. And anyone, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, today the the call of salvation goes out to you. There's no person too sinful. There's no person too far gone. There's no chain of sin that he can't break. He says, call upon me. Some of you today, he's calling upon you. You know you're a sinner. And right now God is speaking into your heart. You're seeing the depth of your sin. You're seeing the glory of Christ's salvation. And I pray you would trust him. He's a prayer away. Do we have a hymn this morning? I'm in the venue. We still got a hymn. There's a guy named Robert Kelso Carter. This guy, unbelievable. He was uh, an incredible athlete. Um, Early 1900s. A phenomenal athlete at the military academy. And he would call himself a Christian, but he said, I, the, the promises and the word of God didn't really become real to me until I was in my 30s. When he was in his 30s, he was diagnosed with a heart condition, and he was put in the hospital, and the doctors told him, we can't do anything else for you. Um, we've done all we can do. We're not sure how long you're going to be able to live, how much further you're going to be able to go. And he said it was at that moment that he took God's word. And he said he believed in the word of God. He believed in Christ. But at that moment, he took out God's word. And he said, I committed myself fully to Christ. And these were his words. He said, I will stand upon your promises whether you heal me or not. Some of you got some stuff going on in your life today. Things that you're pleading with God about. My question to you is, are you willing to stand on the promises of God regardless of his answer? Robert Carter, or Russell, keep forgetting his name, Russell Carter. What's amazing about him, he, God gave him another 49 years. He was ordained a minister. Not only was he a pastor, but he was a school teacher and a coach because he wanted to invest in people's lives in that context. He was a science teacher, a chemistry teacher, a mathematics teacher. And then, just because I guess he felt like he hadn't done enough, he decided he wanted to be a doctor, went back to school and became a practicing physician so that he'd go treat people who were in hopeless situations and tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And he said, all of my life can be attributed to an individual who was willing to stand on the promises of God. That's what we are. Pastor David, come on up here. He's going to lead us. 
Let's stand. You can't sing standing on the promises sitting down, all right? You got to stand for this one. So let's stand together. We're going to sing this as we go into our time of invitation. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing. Standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing. I'm standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises I cannot fall. Every moment to the Spirit's call Resting in my Savior as my all in all Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Savior Standing on your promises. We're trusting, believing, clinging to the confident expectation that what you have promised will come to pass. As your word says, hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it we're we're waiting God we're trusting and God as long as you give us breath what Paul said is so pointed for me to live is Christ and to die is gain as long as you give us breath on this earth I pray that the one passion of our heart would be Christ to know him and to make him known God burden our hearts for the people around us that don't know you God, every day is a day in which you're patient, waiting for one more to come in. And I pray, Lord, that would be our heart. Lord, I pray again, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, salvation is your work. It's all you. God, please, we're pleading with you. Would you work in the heart of somebody who doesn't know you? Draw them to yourself by your grace and by your love and by your word so that they would know you, your friendship, your fellowship, and the certainty of heaven. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.